Welcome to Students and Scholars, a literary podcast accompanying the course English 2620, British Literature After 1800, at Utah Valley University. I'm Dr. Zan Kamek. This week, I'm excited to present our first student-led episode, which discusses the movement of bigger six romanticism. Alana Camargo leads our conversation about the purpose behind the movement and the collective, as well as how to broaden our perspectives of race and empire and how that introduces us to a much more vibrant and textured understanding of the Romantic era, as well as helping us continue our work on being anti-racist. Welcome to the podcast, Alana. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself and tell us what drew you to doing a podcast episode on Bigger Six. Um, I am Alana Camargo. Um, I honestly, the anti-racism and uh, Mm anti-colonialism kind of caught my eye and I thought that that sounded like a very interesting um, topic to look at when talking about British romanticism and British literature in general. So talk to us about the kind of bigger mission or, or purpose behind Bigger Six. Yeah, um, their goal, I think, can be summed up in this quote that I pulled from their Twitter, um, where they said, Bigger Six isn't about either saving or scrapping a field so much as it is about committing to training ourselves in arts of epistemological and political transformation through dedicated knowledge practices. Um, and that sounds very difficult to work through, um, but they, their mission is to sort of look beyond what the traditional um, canon of romanticism is and um, expand that into different voices and um, opening it up to new interpretations. Yeah, and that's and that's something that uh, that doesn't require you know, like the, the big degrees. I mean, I mean, the, the people who started Bigger Six are wonderful scholars in their field, but it, they're not the only ones who can do Bigger Six, right? Yeah, their sort of central ideas, they have a very sort of valuable position in helping shift the focus from the the big six poets to um, the groups that those poets wrote about and to other writers of the time. Yeah, what was what were some of the maybe examples of other writers or other focuses in, in bigger six that you have found? Some of the other focuses that I was looking at um, were groups that had been written into this narrative, but maybe weren't able to be highlighted themselves, but those groups weren't able to sort of tell their own story. Um, They're really only recorded through these narratives that we have from the poets. And that kind of gives sort of a strange impression um, when we don't hear from those other voices. It kind of has this implication that they weren't there. And that those those poets were the only ones writing. And it's a very skewed and, and incorrect sort of view of the world at that time. Yeah, yeah. It, and it, it almost implies that if we talk about just the big six, it seems like they're the only ones that had the ideas. And that's, and that's so deeply flawed, isn't it? Right. Or sort of like their stories were the only ones worth telling or worth recording and passing on through history and... To the, the only ones that are worth continuing to study. Yeah, and so so in our in our class so far, we've kind of talked we have talked about the big six uh, to some extent, but we kind of we tried to kind of move on from the big six <laughs> relatively quickly <laughs> um, because it's such a problem to kind of just focus on those authors. 
So as we head into readings about Henry de Rosio, what are some of the things that stood out to, to you about his poetry? One of the biggest things that kind of stuck with me with de Rosio was that I had never heard of him. All of the, the big six, I had heard of their names and had read at least one of their poems at some point, And they seemed to be very well known and like researched and there's tons of discourse surrounding them. Mm -hmm. um, but as I was looking into Derosio and reading the introductions from some of the co-founders of Bigger Six, I started to see how his poetry and um, sort of his life story are very overlooked. And he has some beautiful poetry. And, um, and I was so surprised that it's not more spoken of, that it, people don't highlight it more. And Derosio is an is an Indian poet with an English mother. Um, and so he's able to actually see a lot of British and Indian issues in his poetry. Um, what were some of the poems that you think were particularly poignant for you or, or aspects of his poetry that you thought were particularly poignant? Um, I really loved the poem To My Native Land. And I feel like it has sort of a similar style to some of the poems that we read from mm -hmm. The Bigger Six. and. Mm -hmm. A lot of these poems are very focused on like their countries and the like politics and um, different issues with other countries. And with Derosio being sort of a contemporary of those bigger six, his poetry is really valuable in like comparing and seeing how they all sort of did similar things, but in such different ways. And um, it, it was just a really beautiful read. I agree. And he's, he's talking about nationalism, which is a very romantic trope. And he's talking about it in terms of, of empire, that, that England is putting its nose where it doesn't belong. And he really isn't afraid to go there. He really explores that in his poetry. Yeah. Um, another thing that sort of stood out with that was how, how he, even though he has ties to um, Britain and, and has those connections, he, um, mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. really dives into exploring both of those. Well, and, and we talked um, previously um, in our class period about Thomas More and how Thomas More as, as an Irish poet is in some ways being like, oh, he's really accessible to English consumers of poetry. Mm -hmm. But that doesn't mean that he's not being subversive in his poetry as well. Um, like we talked about Silent O'Moyle. Yeah. And how that's very, very subversive. And I think... It's very interesting to notice that in the dedication to his one of his collections of poems, he actually has a dedication to Thomas More, and he uses one of the Irish melody songs, um, the Irish harp, as a big indicator for him as a source of inspiration. So he's like he's he's purposely trying to almost be British adjacent, mm -hmm. right? Saying like, okay, here's you know, Thomas More is doing something slightly subversive. I'm going to take my cues from that. Um, and then bring my own very specific viewpoints to that. Because his his poem, the, the, the Harp of India, mm -hmm. um, is really kind of overtly riffing off of Thomas More. Yeah, I did think it was interesting, though, how he sort of ties himself back to Britain um, because he's, he's also partially English. Mm -hmm. And in tying himself to both India and Britain, he's sort of flipping it on its head and redefining what it really means to be English, because I feel like a lot of the time with Britain, they sort of build themselves up 
as this monolith and they're very like we are inspired by other people we inspire them and they sort of have almost this like purity complex um absolutely the way that they're like colonizing different countries and so I really loved that he sort of in like specifically talking about India he he's flipping that on its head yeah yeah and and pointing out how flawed that kind of ideology is white England is not the end-all be-all it just isn't it can't be yeah and it definitely gives him this sort of position that some other writers didn't have because he he can sort of claim that English heritage and um, at the same time have insight into the fact that there's an entire rest of the world out there that has so much to offer and they have so many ideas that are worth talking about. When when you were talking about kind of preparing for this, you, you actually thought that there was some really interesting uh, Latin American exp- uh, response to the bigger six. Yeah, um, I thought it was interesting in the Poetry Foundation introduction to British Romanticism. They talk about how it was kind of ushered in by revolutions in the United States and France. Um, And in my research, I found a lot about the revolution in South America and sort of that time where the people of South America were starting to pull away from Spain and trying to gain independence. Um, One of the things that I was reading um, that I had found on the Bigger Six website um, talked about envisioning um, studies where fluency in Spanish and um, Latin American reinterpretations of romantic texts sort of held the same weight and um, worth as the German and French and Italian reinterpretations and languages and influences on romanticism. And so when I was looking at how Byron was influenced by Simon Bolivar, mm-hmm. it was super interesting to to do that um, reading from the Poetry Foundation and see that it didn't mention the Latin American Revolution at all. Yeah, and, and the fact that that's problematic. Yeah, and it was super interesting because as I was doing the reading um, in my own experiences with reading romantic texts in Spanish, I hadn't really made the connection that those were romantic texts because they have such a different um, idea to them and they are reinterpreted in very different ways. Um, and in, so, in, the, in the translations themselves? Yes, um, because there aren't direct translations right. um, it, and because the values um, of Latin America vary so much, mm-hmm. it definitely gives like a very different feel. And the way that they give weight to those texts is very different too. Could you could you give some specific examples? Sure, yeah. Um, one that I noticed in the essay that I was reading for this was it sort of talks about how they almost found them um, a little bit, I don't want to say frivolous. Um, they were They were very much so for entertainment. They weren't necessarily like academic. The translations are really beautiful. Um, and I am by no means very good at Spanish. I'm fluent, but I definitely had to sort of make connections. And they just sort of see these poems as like iconic, but they are, they're seen differently than Spanish poetry. Um, mm-hmm. And part of that comes from the colonization of Latin America. Um, 
the Spanish sort of imposed themselves and their writings and their religions on to Latin America. That's one of the big questions that this essay and the group who put together this essay um, talk about is how the colonial influence of Spain kind of carries over into the way that they read English poetry. And that makes a certain amount of sense that that colonizing force is seen as European, not just isolated to Spain. Right. Um, they definitely sort of build it up differently than their own writing. So do, so do are there some examples of of Latin American poetry, romantic poetry that's the kind of like directly responding to to like Byron or or any of these other major uh, British figures that we're that we're familiar with? Yeah, um, there is um, part of the Byromania in all these countries, and the thing that they try and highlight with specifically Byron and Bolivar is that um, in sort of being inspired by Bolivar and like they sort of bounce the the influence back and forth. You talked about Latin American readers kind of viewing Byron poetry as kind of, you know, not not particularly relevant. What is the way that they kind of reinterpreted? What's the direction that they went with romantic poetry? Yeah, there is this um, book that they write, they wrote um, sort of around this time where the protagonists are reading um, Byron's poetry and the way that they're interpreting it is they sort of use it as a, a way to look at romantic love. So that they kind of reduce Byron, for example, to kind of more of like a romantic in terms of like lowercase r romantic. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what I got from it. I think that's wonderful, though, to kind of to see that Byron, the way he's perceived in British literature as this kind of rebel icon, you know, huge figure and for people in Latin America to be like, OK, but maybe not. <laughs> you know, um, I, th- I think that, you know, saying like, OK, that that doesn't correspond to the way that we interpret Bolivar um, or or doesn't translate to the way that we see revolution. It just, you know, like Byron doesn't fit. And so and so it kind of shows that kind of one size does not fit all <laughs> kind of. Concept. Right. And it was very interesting to see how Byron was inspired by Bolivar. Um, and just like a little bit of background on Bolivar as he was just huge in South America. Um, And he really changed so much that he started to shape South America into what it is today. Because before there were only like four vice royalties um, and there was like Patagonia and Guiana. But other than that, they were sort of locked into these like big sections of South America. And he, um, in liberating all these different areas from Spain, he helped from Venezuela and Peru and Colombia and Bolivia, which is named after him. I, I never <laughs> made that connection. I didn't either until I read this. Um, and what I was reading was saying that Byron was very aware of Bolivar's endeavors. Um, and he at one point wrote a letter where he talked about um, his intent to move to Venezuela and he had a boat named Bolivar. And um, it was a very interesting connection because I feel like when we talk about history, we sort of section the world off into yeah. this is what was happening in Europe and this was what was happening in the Americas and they're all sort of unrelated. Which is obviously ridiculous. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, and it was super fascinating to see how these events sort of had effects on Byron's writing 
and on his life in general because he when he was um in Greece and he was trying to to enact some political change there mm-hmm. um it didn't go over very well mm-hmm. and he as he wrote about it um and he wrote about the things that were happening in South America it was really interesting to see the way that he wrote about it because again um it's almost like he sort of speaks for what's happening there it's sort of the way that history looks from Europe which is interesting I think that's why bigger six is so important is because this happens a lot where these poets sort of impose themselves on onto what's happening the the story we see um and the story we listen to is from byron um and the things that are happening we aren't hearing them firsthand we're sort of hearing them through this lens of britain yeah that there's that this this kind of insidious filter that's yes. <laughs> you know that we're, we're always filtering it through empire rather than going to primary sources to talk about this Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the core of this bigger bigger six is that idea of, okay, realize that we've been filtering it, realize that we've been accessing it through Byron rather than actually looking at Latin American romantic poets and seeing how they specifically are addressing their version of romanticism, their revolutions, their concepts, and, and kind of taking off some of those European blinders that we've yeah. put Yeah, um, and even with um, writing about um, slavery and race um, mm-hmm. with those big six we sort of just take their word for it. We don't really look beyond it. And there was a quote from another um, article that I read where he says that studies of romantic blackness are now too often limited to slavery with coverage limited to slave narratives. Mm-hmm. And Blake is sort of this guy who I've read, he like, he's described as sort of someone who fought against injustice. And he sort of highlighted that in his poetry which is wonderful and very interesting. Um, but what more can we find when we read works by Black authors and we look beyond just that slavery narrative, which is, um, we still sort of see that issue today where we get caught up in violence against Black people and we don't tell stories of Black joy and um, yeah. realistic depictions of all of the other things that there are to life. Um, we just get very caught up in the issues with racism and not really telling the stories of black people who have such three-dimensional lives that they lead beyond racism that they experience. Absolutely. I think, I think that that's a really well articulated um, explanation of, of these, these are not one note individuals or cultures. These are incredibly diverse, beautiful, complex cultures. And if we reduce them down to narratives of slavery, or racism, then we're not we're not actually doing the work of anti-racism. Mm-hmm. One of the things I have enjoyed about about reading some of the the bigger six materials and and particularly um, an, an article by um, Patricia Matthews on Bridgerton. You know that I just have a thing with Bridgerton. <laughs> um, but in this very popular depiction of Regency England, you know, around the time of Romanticism, that Bridgerton doesn't back down from showing diversity in its characters um and it's not just you know one note it's not oh you're black and therefore this is your experience it's this idea of like yeah like these are people who have complex issues they are coming from complex family situations they have to deal with their marriages in different ways you know the fact that the queen is is black the fact that the protagonist duke is black 
but that's not what their story is about. And that's, that's kind of, that's, that's essential to this kind of storytelling. Right. And they don't isolate the characters either. There are um, black characters who are of different class situations Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. it shows their interactions with each other. They don't sort of separate those um, characters into, well, you're this sort of higher up version of a person of color in this time. Mm -hmm. And you get to be separate from those who aren't as um, privileged as Mm -hmm. you are, as these other characters are written. Mm -hmm. And that in Bridgerton, they do kind of are willing to show every kind of echelon of society is, you know, race is everywhere. It's not, we have a very skewed perception when we read things like Jane Austen, that, you know, that Britain is just white. Right. It's so interesting. I had never really thought about like, where are the people of color in this story? Um, Because we were sort of taught to ask the question like, okay, but where are the women when we're reading these works? Um, Mm -hmm. But we don't always extend that out and say, okay, but where are the black people? Where are the the immigrants? Where are the people who were marginalized then and are marginalized now and Mm -hmm. see why and how they were ignored? The the narratives throughout history sort of pick and choose um, who gets to be heard and whose story is worth highlighting. And that's one of the big reasons why it's so important for us to expand who we read. I mean, the fact that many of us in this class are getting exposed to Henry DeRosio for the first time ever. And it's important that we also look at the texts that have been kind of handed to us in sort of a, a traditional sense, like Blake and Austin and Byron, and point out and acknowledge the deep whiteness and privilege of those perspectives and point out why that's so limiting. Yeah, and I think that these readings are a really good like jumping off point um, because they're so well studied. But like you said, they are filtered and those connections um, can be made and that are really worth making to dive into more than just Britain being Britain. I know that that also relates to some of the other work that you were you were reading and, and that you had made a connection to um, Bakari Diaby's um, article, Black Women and In the Shadow of Romanticism. Yeah, um, I really love the way that the um, author of that article put it. Race is not just about the relations between certain groups, but is simultaneously more diffused and more intimately personal. Um, I encourage us to think about the everydayness of racial belonging, of racial perception, of claiming a race for yourself or imposing a race on another. And um, in his article, he sort of talks about ways that we can um, look more towards um, Black writers of the time um, and not sort of censor different voices. But he also points out that um, we often turn to Black men and Black women are especially especially marginalized. They're Mm. cut out even more um, Mm. than Black men, which... Um, I feel like is, but it doesn't make sense that we would um, push to read white women's works next to white men's. But when we turn to people of color, we sort of privilege black men's works and and ignore the black women who were writing. Yeah, yeah, that, that women of color are often operating under double disenfranchisements. But you're mm-hmm. absolutely right. It's when, when you are a woman of color who has ideas, <laughs> you're working doubly hard to get your voice heard in a lot of these narratives and um and it shouldn't be that freaking hard 
<laughs> so I, I think that's a beautiful uh, articulation of, yeah, what, what it is to be um, searching for and, and actively seeking out voices, not just of color, but women of color, women of different socioeconomic situations from, from all of these, you know, we, we, we shouldn't just pick and choose what fits our narrative. Yes, it's worth getting a full picture of what the experience was to be a person of color or a woman of color and so much more out there to yeah. to learn from. Yeah. You know, that the work, the work doesn't ever stop, basically. Mm-hmm. And that's and that's kind of what the, the idea of anti-racism essentially is founded on. To be anti-racist is to be per, like perpetually pursuing ways of actively tearing down narratives of, of racism. Right. It's not just about not being racist yourself. It's about dismantling the ways that we sort of allow racist structures to persist. Yeah. And 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 that the work will never be done. It's not it's not like, oh well I read Henry DeRosio, my bigger six work is done. Right. It's not just about expanding who you're reading and and why it's about taking those ideas somewhere. And one of the uh, found co-founders of Bigger Six said mm-hmm. it's not a matter of how good our ideas are, but of what and whom they are good for. And who who was it that said that? Do you remember? Zorowski. Okay. Eugenia Zorowski. Mm-hmm. I do think that it's significant that this uh, movement and this collective is so recent, um, that it was only formed in 2017 and that it's relatively small. Yeah, and it's and it's not that scholars and individuals weren't doing the work before, but we never had it kind of as a movement, as a collective, mm-hmm. um, with a common purpose and and game plan, you know. And and this was a movement that actually got its traction started in on Twitter. Mm-hmm. It was it was kind of a hashtag that started to connect people, you know. And our course is talking a lot about new media networks, mm-hmm. and and so the idea that this this whole movement started on social media, but also that it is a larger network of not just scholars, but of like the primary texts, these romantic authors and looking at their networks of influence. You talked about biromania, I think is what you called it. Yes. Um, the scholars <laughs> call it biromania. Um, and that that's a network, you know, the way that, you know, that authors have fandoms and that still happens in the, in the romantic era. And so that biromania isn't isolated to just this little core nugget in England. It's this massive um, network of influence that people are continually having the back and forth to by taking our contemporary media networks and being able to explore those media networks kind of in retrospect is some some really exciting work. I think on their on the collective's website and particularly on the work that's um, focused on Henry DeRosio, they actually have um, this, it's kind of like a web of influences for DeRosio and you can actually like click on, okay, I want to see British romanticism specifically and how that is networking into DeRosio's work. And so you click on that and then you can actually see this like spider graph that reconfigures and shows you, okay, here are like the seven or eight poems where he's directly acknowledging and addressing British romanticism. And and that's exactly what we're talking about in this course with these networks of influence, this new media and what it can do to help us understand and kind of expand with, with bigger six. Well, in closing, Alana, any any last um, explanations of, of why Bigger Six is something that in our classroom and outside of our classroom, we need to continue to, to do this work? I think that it is such an important work because even if you don't dive into all of the um, things that have been written um, surrounding this movement, just knowing that 
and acknowledging that there there are other voices out there and valuable because we do still continue to study these romantic authors and we're not we're not done talking about them and so if we're if we're going to keep talking about them we, we need to sort of look up maybe a little bit deeper and a little bit wider the work of anti-racism is never done. We we must continue to push forward and push against narratives that kind of isolate voices. Mm-hmm. Thank you so much, Alana, for, for this conversation. I really, really enjoyed it. Thank you again to Alana Camargo for this excellent discussion of Bigger Six Romanticism. We look forward to discussing this further in our class. Join me next week when our next guest scholar, Dr. Trenton Olson, explores themes of Darwinism in the Victorian era.